Hi, listener. My name is Zach, and I'm a millennial. No, this isn't a self-help group for avocado toast addicts. This is a podcast about the great things millennials are doing. According to the press, we're busy killing everything. Here's an abridged list. Buffalo Wild Wings, napkins, motorcycles, home ownership, yogurt, especially light yogurt, bars of soap, oil, lunch, J. Crew, cars, wine corks, the Toyota Scion, working, travel marketing, and my favorite, baby names. But we were also foretold to change the world. In fact, the pop psychology department at several big-name business magazines often talks about how businesses need to give their millennial employees a feeling of changing the world through their employment. So how are we doing on that? Well, this podcast is a deep dive on millennials who are changing the world, on those young adults that are doing great things. I don't necessarily mean the Mark Zuckerbergs or Evan Spiegels of the world, but those that are making changes to their communities, to their regions, to their countries, and impacting more than just themselves and their families. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not quite like other millennials for a few reasons. I think everybody has their exceptions. I'm married. I own a home. I still use bar soap and fabric softener, although I don't particularly care much for J. Crew. But for the last four years, my wife and I have used our New Year's Eve to set goals for ourselves and review the goals we set the previous year. Did we make them? Did we miss? How'd we do? This ritual has evolved into something we both look forward to and we hold each other accountable for throughout the whole year. It's made us better people, better planners, and better spouses. As I interview people I know, people I admire, and people I want to get to know, I'll be asking them how they think about their profession and the work they're doing, their passions, and working to distill down their greatness into action steps to put you, listener, on a path to greatness if you so desire it. Who among us is changing the world, and what can we learn from them? So many of us want to be great. It's hard-coded into the years of schooling that we can do or be anything. Maybe that's wrong. I have an inkling that it's more right than wrong. So far, we've become disruptors and the designers of a better world. It's an admirable first step, but we hardly hear from the people who aren't quite at the top yet, but are on their way to something great. That's where this podcast hopefully steps in. Throughout the first season, we're going to hear the voices of those in the thick of it, those who are accomplishing great things locally, regionally, or behind the scenes, and helping build the framework for houses, the internet, or the world of tomorrow. Chapter 1. Foundations I was privileged enough to grow up in the Chicago suburbs, where the standard of living was high and the middle class was probably above the national average. I wasn't wealthy, and neither were my neighbors. My hometown of Wheeling, Illinois, was relatively diverse for the northwest suburbs of Chicago, ranked 17 on a list of the most diverse suburbs of Illinois, and through a series of fortunate events, I was able to meet some very interesting people, many of whom are now taking on the world and trailblazing new paths to success. What about me? Well, this podcast isn't about me. I want to learn how to do great things from those who are successful. I want to share with the world the voices and the action steps that people have taken that are ahead so that you, dear listener, and myself can learn and grow. 
Paul, a guy I went to high school with in Wheeling, Illinois, is doing great things. Hey, my name is Paul and I'm a millennial. I had a chance to talk with Paul a bit about architecture, design, and the philosophy behind it. Hi, Paul. Thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you start by telling me a bit about yourself? I'm uh, practicing architecture in uh, the lovely city of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And, uh, you know, Zach, obviously you know me that we went to high school together, so we grew up in the nice burbs of Chicago. And um, I think that's that's the really the foundation of, of uh, how I started to get around architecture. My dad's a landscape contractor and, and designer, and um, he has his own practice. And I think being around the built environment at a young age um, didn't really kind of speak in my mind of, uh, yeah, I want to be an architect, but um, it, it helped kind of doing those subconscious influences that started to shape what I was seeing later in life. I thought I always wanted to be an architect, but it seemed like, you know, my parents were always telling me, you know, you need to be an architect. You're always playing with Legos. You're always working with your dad. And um, to be honest, that was like the easiest route for me. I was like, well, maybe I should do this. I said, I think this should be fun and, and enjoyable. Um and it is. Um, so I, I kind of lucked out in that way. But then I started finding that passion. So I ended up uh, going east um, to just north of Indianapolis uh, called Ball State University. And originally, the whole goal was architecture and volleyball. Did you catch that, listener? Paul had goals in mind. I think that in order to achieve something great, you have to start by setting achievable but lofty goals and then planning those action steps towards achieving that eventual goal. As I continued talking to Paul, he lays out those action steps that he took towards achieving his dreams. Every day is a new problem, and you creatively solve it. There's no one way to do it. Yeah, we have our codes, and yeah, we have our life safety issues, but um, there are literally a million ways to design a box. And I think that's what I gravitated towards is I'm not this engineering guy that's totally uh, left brain, but I'm not this artistic uh, guy that's just drawing up these masterpieces. I look, I like to look into the middle of it and there's this idea of form and then there's this idea of function and how they're, they're becoming married. Um, so I went through four years of that and I, I had a lot of growing up to do between, I think most males do between 18 and 24 and 25. And after I graduated from my undergrad, um, I uh, went to Indianapolis or I went to Louisville and did an internship and uh, did that for seven or eight months and then uh, jumped on a, a little group uh, from Ball State and did a world tour. So it was, it was 32 countries. And I think that's when I started really taking shape as a designer. Um, I experienced 32 countries in four months. And um, not only did I experience amazing architecture, I saw the slums of, of Cambodia and Vietnam and um, how these people live in, in a built environment with absolutely nothing. Paul mentioned something called the built environment. And what he means by that comes from social science and an understanding of architecture that goes back to the ancient Greeks. Hippodamus, the father of urban planning, developed Greek cities in the late 400 BCE. And this idea of the built environment addresses both the need for humans to have shelter or enclosed workspace, retail, or entertainment spaces, but it also speaks to the way that humans interact with their environment that's been adapted by humans. This whole idea of planning the world around you to achieve a greater success, I have a feeling this will come up a lot in our future conversations. 
Back to Paul. I started thinking to myself, how can I start to give more with little? And not only to the world, but to the places that I, I live and work in. Um, so after that, I, I went to work at 110 Studio in Indianapolis. There was a lot of growing pains with me and that firm, uh, but they stuck with me for basically two and a half years. I kind of uh, took a couple years off before getting my master's, and I learned the most from them because at a small firm, you're not working on the grandiose projects that these big firms are working on, their skyscrapers, but you're working on on projects that are local to your community. So you're driving by them every day. You're interacting with your clients, even when you really don't want to see them during the weekend. And you, you have to take great care of where you live. And I thought that was an amazing experience to have because you're designing your backyard. It hits May and I graduate and I don't have a full-time job with 110 and I'm just thinking, shit. <laughs> it's a great time to be an architect right now. In 2015 especially, as firms are hire- hiring everyone that can just move a mouse and, and draw a line on a computer right now. And it was an amazing time where 10, 10 firms I interviewed at 10 offers. And so I, I was able to really be picky and, and really kind of slow down and, and figure out who I wanted to work for. And it was two weeks before I was going on a trip to Europe. I, I treated myself to another European adventure uh, with my girlfriend at the time, ex-girlfriend now. Um, but it was um, two weeks and we get a magazine in, in our office and the cover of it's Cedar Rapids Public Library. And I want you to Google it uh, if you can right now. It just won Library of the Year uh, across the nation. And so small town Iowa, it's called the flyover state for a reason. You know, you and I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I've never been to Iowa in my life, you know, 25 years never been to Iowa. And my boss, Cleet, at the time said, you need to apply here. They're doing great work. Iowa is under the radar architecture. You're going to learn a lot. So I called. I, I applied. I called. Didn't really hear anything. A week before I head out to Europe, I call again and I apply. And it was kind of funny. They were just switching HR uh, directors. And so my my email with my resume got kind of wasted and lost in transition. And I was having a conversation with my boss now, David Sorg, who recruited me, and we had a 30-minute conversation, and I, f- I fell in love with what he was saying about the firm, and he said, look, when, when can we get you here? So fast forward three and a half weeks, I'm flying from Berlin to Iceland to Chicago, got my oil change, drove to Iowa, had dinner with him and four other people at the firm, and then I did a four-and-a-half-hour interview the next day offer two hours later, and I accepted a day and a half later. In touring all these countries and seeing how people live in minimalist environments, has that affected your design at all? Yeah, you know, I I think, um, and it's interesting because, you know, it's been it's been four years now, um, and I, I constantly have to remind myself because you get into this rut sometimes of of designing and and, and basically daily living. Um, but uh, when I talk with clients and when I you know either when it's at OPN or you know my side hustle, um, 
I get down to the the one question of 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 why 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 do you why are you doing this why are we having this conversation and that's the most important thing so you know strip away the expensive material strip away the the big spaces what's what's the bare necessity of needing this and I think that really hits home um, not just to like the surface level of a human but really subconsciously deep into the heart of why am I doing this is it for me or is it for my family or is it for a bigger picture and and I really do think now looking back at it it has changed my game I, I'm I don't I don't look for this kind of grandiose idea I just I want to do really elegant buildings that catch the eye and whether you like it or not I'm gonna still be able to go to bed at night but my my whole goal when I design is to is to obviously make my clients happy but to really get people think thinking about design a licensed architect uh, is looking out for the health safety and welfare of people we have to keep people safe when they're in the building and we have to get people safely out of the building when they need to get out at the end of the day that is the bare responsibility of an architect and so at the end you know what we do and what i feel like i do um is you want to make meaningful contributions to the built environment what uh you know every day someone interacts with architecture whether you don't you think so or not you interact with a building, whether you're, you know, living in your apartment or you're driving to work every day, someone's interacting with architecture. And so we want to make people's lives as easy as possible, get them thinking, emotionally uh, react to architecture, whether it's an aha moment, whether it's goosebumps when you walk into uh, La Gratis Familia in, in Spain um, or make people feel at home or in safe. Um, and so this kind of, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a loaded question of what an architect does. Um, but we're creative problem solvers. That's, that's, you know, clients come to us because, you know, they don't, they don't want a new building. They need a new building. Some of these architects sadly are just after that paycheck. And when you get to a level, sometimes that paycheck's nice, but at the end of the day, what's more important you making meaningful contributions to society or to your pocketbook? And that's, that's something um, I always pick society, I feel like. If you're good at what you do, you're going to figure out a way to get paid. Um, but I think it's the morals of being a millennial is you want to give progress and, and hope to the future. What's the ultimate goal of any architect and do you share that goal? That's a great question because if you ask me that question uh, – five years ago, 10 years ago, yesterday, they might've all been different. And so when I, and I, I first started thinking like, what, what would an architect, an architect say? And I think at the beginning of everyone's careers is honestly to, to make meaningful contributions to the built environment. That's, that's what, that's what every architect dreams of is being that star architect and being the best, like the Frank Lloyd Wright of my generation. I want to be the Frank Lloyd Wright of the millennials, you know, really be, and it's very, are like arrogant and grandiose and so um you know going through my lifetime of architecture and that that really spans 10 years now is you know when i was 18 i committed to doing architecture now i'm 28 and so for for like a little less than half my life i've been doing this and, and committed to it and I, I love it every day and so um 
every goal, every, every architect is different and, and we all have different goals. Um, and my goal is, is honestly, you know, Zach, from a business level is I, I want to own my own firm. I want to, I want to be running my own firm because that, that really takes not only some pride and dedication, but it gets real when there's financial stuff involved. You know, what I want, my goal is, is to honestly own my own firm, really kind of change the fabric of Iowa and change the fabric of Eastern Iowa and Cedar Rapids and, and see how architecture can start to grow here and start to become a hub. I've always thought, you know, in college, especially the same question was asked, I'm going to be an architect in Chicago. That's like the greatest city in the world right now for architecture it has amazing architecture, but they don't need any more great architects. The Cedar Rapids do, the Omahas, the Lincolns, these small metropolises that are surrounded by these small communities that don't know what good architecture is. They need us more than the New York Cities, the LAs, the Chicagos. I truly believe every person deserves great design and every budget deserves great design and not every architect believes that. What did it take to get started in architecture? Obviously, you can go get a degree, but I got a degree in poetry, and I'll tell you right now, I'm not getting paid to write poetry. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so 2008, you know, you're you're getting your bachelor's degree, and um, truly, I, I think it's interesting is uh, to to become an architect by the state, you have to have an accredited degree, and so um, you could have actually, after you got your poetry degree, you could have gone to grad school and gotten a master's degree as long as it was accredited. And so you see a lot of either traditional students like myself do the four, the four degree, four year degree route, and then go to a two year master's degree. Or there's a lot of schools that do just a five year professional bachelor's. And so after you get through school, uh, you, you, you try to do internships during the summer at, at different architecture firms, but the obviously thing, the obvious choice is to go work at an architecture firm. And, um, there's this thing called the IDP process or the architectural experience process. They just changed this on me. And so, um, you have to do a minimum of, I had to do a minimum of 5,200 hours. And so that's roughly like three years of work, working under an architect, getting different experience in different areas of architecture. So, you know, design or, uh, specifications or, uh, contractor, uh, contract administration or construction administration, um, all these different areas, you know, I'm, I don't want to bore you. Um, and then you, you have to sit for exams. So, uh, now you have to sit for six exams and, and I'm, I'm going to be taking my fourth one. Um, so I'm, I'm little, I'm over the hump of halfway. Um, and then, you know, that idea of once those are, those are passed and registered, you're a full fledged architect. And so it's interesting, uh, because, Technically, you have to be an architect to design anything over 5,000 square feet. But if you want to do residential, as long as it's under 5,000 square feet, you can design houses and call yourself you know, a home designer, but you're not really an architect. And so there's all these little nuances. Um, but that's that's kind of like the, the technical process to get licensed is you have to take these exams that are administered um, by the National uh, NCARB National Council of Architecture Registration Boards. So they 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 administer all these exams throughout the throughout the country, and depending on where you live, um, kind of determines what kind of tests you have to take. So California has to take an extra test for earthquakes, um, and so does Florida, I believe. And so it's just it's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, that's that's really the technical path of architecture. If you're if you're in college. Um, I would, I would look at, at, at exploring these passions. And so, um, if you are as a senior in high school, you know, apply to an architecture school, go visit architecture firms, really dive into what's, what's the daily life. 
Um, you know, some people ask, like, do I take a lot of math classes? Do I take a lot of drawing classes? I would take every single class that interests you and gets you creative and thinking critically. So take those philosophy classes, take those history classes, ask a million questions of why, like, why did someone do this? Why are we drawing it this way? Um, because at the end of the day, uh, that's what we have to do at work and we have to critically ask ourselves why, why am I making this move? Why am I drawing this wall here? And I think, uh, you know, in high school I was taking these drafting classes and I was taking these residential architecture classes and I thought I was taking some art classes, but I want to take more science. I want to, I want to see how, uh, zinc reacts to another metal because when I'm in designing buildings, I need to know that I need to learn how to do that. Um, and to have that kind of just subtle information, um, would be amazing. So as a, as a kid, um, I would say the biggest three things are, are take every class that interests you and, and can have you ask critical questions, travel. So whether you're in BFE, Iowa, or you're in downtown New York, explore and not just in a car, get your, get on your feet, go walk, get lost. Everyone has a smartphone. You're, you're not going to truly get lost, but really immerse yourself in the built environment that you are around and really study it, really look at how people interact with it. You know, go to different parks, go to urban, urban landscapes, go to town squares and see how they're, see how they're designed. Look at, look at roofs, look at doors, look at windows and see the different connections. You know, what does your eye bring you when at, when at normal eye level, but when, when you look up, what does that show you? Or when you look down, you know, where, what are your feet walking on? Um, and then the third is, is read. You know, I didn't, I did not read enough in high school and I'm trying to catch up. You got to immerse yourself in the now and enjoy the process instead of looking for the result. Our president of our company has a pretty cool story of, he was an apprentice. He never really, he never got an accredited degree. And so he just practiced for, you know, I started at OPN for nine, when he was 19 or 20 and then by 40, he owned the firm and he, he got licensed in Minnesota because there was, there's kind of a funny workaround to get licensed in Minnesota. So he was able to call himself an architect, but there's that old school way of apprenticeship. And I almost look at it as like, is that better? Paul's advice on how to get started in architecture is critical to the core of this program. How to do it, whatever it is, is up to you. Starting your dream firm with a small group of friends and working to make something great exist, or fulfilling a lifelong passion and finally writing that book you set out to write years ago but could never find the time. Millennial Moves is about finding a passion, realizing that it takes action steps, not motivational quotes and empty affirmations. If this sounds overly critical of your friends who post selfies with hashtag grinding next to them, it probably is, unless those people are truly grinding with a plan in mind, working to better themselves and their environment. Let's wrap this episode up with a bit more from Paul. Give, give me a, just a couple uh, buildings you've designed and kind of seen built. Yeah, so uh, working at a... Uh, a massive firm. So OPN's four offices, 120 ish people. And, um, so when I first started here, I started working on the university of Iowa pharmacy building and that was a year and a half of my life. And I 
did not think it was going to take that long. But when it's a $70 million building, that's 240,000 square feet. It's going to take that long. So that's actually under construction now. So that's at the University of Iowa. Um, Back in Indianapolis, um, I worked on a couple of private residences, and so I got to see that construction process and, and get going. Um, some breweries, so Black Acre Brewery, uh, I got to have my hand in uh, some of the future expansion that they're doing, their outdoor patio, and those are smaller projects that are under construction. Um, there's this cool little garden company called Spots uh, uh, Lawn and Garden, I believe, and uh, little like mom and pop garden service, but they're, they totally kick ass, um, great people. And uh, I got to see see that design uh, be completed and get a picture in front of it. Um, there's a little restaurant in Indy called Public Greens, and I got to have my hand in that too. And you look at the business model of architecture, and it's it's this, hey, you know, you're my client, Zach. You need a new twenty million dollar office building. You come to me, great. I knock it out of the park, and I, I get you a great twenty million dollar office. And then I don't see you again for twenty to twenty five years. And so it's like, okay, we're a service industry, but how can I start to make architecture a commodity? How can I start to change the way I can do architecture? And that's changing the business model. It's so, the business model has been around for 115 years or maybe more. And it's the same thing. You hire me, I do great work. You pay me, you leave. I have to go find another client that can supplement that $20 million building again or find multiple clients. But how can I start to create passive income? How can I start to invest my fee and say, hey, Zach, you're doing a business. It's a startup business. I'm going to cut my fee by 30% and I'm going to invest in you. I want to take an ownership piece of your startup. Give me your two next action steps that will take you from Paul now to the Paul you want to be. So the, the, the two are – are, is educating, educating the people that don't know about architecture. And I think uh, it, it goes twofold into my next step. I, I think you don't know what you just don't know. And so when people think of custom homes, like I explained, they just don't know what a, a custom home process could be with the same exact money. It doesn't have to be more expensive. Good design doesn't have to be more expensive, but a lot of architects choose choose for it to be. And so I think that's that's kind of the first step. But then the second one is, is and this is this is what I heard all the time in in, in college. It, it's it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so that immediately makes makes for it to be networking. And so for the first couple of years after high school, I was so keen on networking, 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 because it was so self centered. It was so it was for my self purpose and my self growth. And now when I moved to Iowa, it's more of a creating relationships and meaningful ones too. And so if I'm, you know, grabbing a cup of coffee with you, I'm not, I'm not talking about architecture. I'm talking about what you're passionate about. I'm talking, I'm talking about what your, your purpose is. And, and that's the, the biggest thing for me is creating relationships that are meaningful because I truly want to care about you. And I truly want to be surrounded by people and surround other people that are passionate and have purpose and are trying to make their purpose happen. And I think architecture just falls into place. You know, as an architect, I have a responsibility to my community. And so if I truly believe in someone's story, I'm going to invest in that. I'm going to truly say, hey, I'm not going to deliver you a great design, but I'm going to cut my fee a little bit and I'm going to give it back to you so you can start to say, hey, he's a little bit more affordable and he's still giving me an awesome design, but he believes in me now too. And so I think that goes a long way as well. Um, and it's just like, I want, I want to wake up 
you know, the goal is the goal. I think everyone is, is at the, you know, you know, I have this goal of owning my own firm. I have this goal of, of changing the fabric of design in Eastern Iowa and Cedar Rapids. And, and I'm so optimistic about it. I, I, I fight for it every single day. Um, but at the heart of it, I want to wake up jazzed, jazzed every day to do what I do. And for the past 10 years, I've woken up every single day during the week, jazzed up about changing the built environment. And when I am 95 and still practicing architecture, and I'm still waking up jazzed up. It's a pretty good damn life well, well lived. A huge thanks to Paul Desmond for speaking with me. We had a great conversation, and it was wonderful to reconnect with folks from my days in Wheeling, Illinois. I hope you've enjoyed the first episode of Millennial Moves. If you have feedback, questions, or just want to get in touch, I'd love to chat. Send me an email at millennialmovespod at gmail.com. Rate and review us on the iTunes store, and if you can't find us on your podcast aggregator of choice, go ahead and drop me a line and I'll make sure to get it listed there. Stay tuned, our second episode releases in two weeks, where I'll be speaking with the owner of Rubin Digital Media on starting a digital media company, imposter syndrome, and more. Thanks for listening. Thank you.